If you have a Bible, as Mark said, we're in Hebrews 12. I'm just going to read this, and then we're going to talk about it for a little bit. Starting in verse 18, he says this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And I know I think my translation is a little bit different than the one on the screen, so sorry about that. (laughs) And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they for that they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the same time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, it indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Man, this is an amazing text. And it's a text that's about two different mountaintop experiences. And It reminded me of this story. I've told this before, but it's like the one story I have in my life where I was like looking on from one mountaintop to another. I I do some climbing. And so me and my friend, um, as I a friend I met in in Salt Company in Ames, we went on this like big climbing excursion one time out in Colorado. And we did not know what we were doing at all. We were like, let's climb this like thousand foot climb together. And, you know, we showed up. He didn't even have like a chalk bag. He like forgot it. So we literally used like, he had like a sock. We put some chalk in there. And so we're like trying to climb this thing. Like it's real sketch. We don't know what we're doing. But we eventually get to the top of this. And in Colorado, if you know this, like you're supposed to kind of climb really early in the day. You're supposed to climb mountains really early before 2 p.m. Because 2 p.m. is a pretty good chance that you might have this like really massive thunder and lightning storm sweep in. And if you're on top of the mountain when this happens, you do not want to be there when it comes. And, uh, you know, we didn't wake up that early, so <laughs> we're at the top of this mountain, and we finally kind of crest, and we get over, and we realize, like, there's this massive, massive thunderstorm that is coming what we think is our direction, and uh, it's coming our way, and basically what happened was this. There's, like, two mountain peaks. There's one right here, and there's another one right next to it, and we get to the top, and we kind of watch this storm roll over the mountain that's probably just two miles away from us on the other side of the valley, And we're watching as this other mountain is like basically being lit up, like lightning. We're like seeing like lightning hit this mountain. I mean, it is like dark clouds, like wind. You can like feel this like cold front coming off of this mountain. But we're sitting on the other mountain just across the valley in sunshine. And it is warm. And it's it's like honestly one of the coolest experiences I've had outdoors. Because we're just watching this happen. And we're like, if I was on the other mountain... I would not be safe at all, right? Because um, because I'm in this mountain, my experience is totally different. And this is what he's saying. There's some days where actually the mountain you're on makes all the difference 
And that's what he's saying. He wants to talk about two different mountaintop experiences with the presence of God. Mount Sinai, and then this thing he's calling Mount Zion. And it's about much more than that because it's about what is most, like arguably like the biggest problem in the Old Testament that we see is actually the problem of God's presence. And I want to talk about this because God's presence we normally think of is like, man, we want God's presence. We're about it. You come to church to kind of experience God's presence. But in the story of the Bible, God's presence is actually one of the biggest problems God's people have. Because whenever the presence of God comes to dwell with his people, it actually isn't the experience that me and my friend had, this warm, comforting, safe environment. But no, the mountain of the Lord was always the one covered in darkness and thunder. It was always the one that was being lit on fire. And the author of Hebrews wants to start by saying, hey, let's go back and I want to look at the scene that happened in Mount Sinai. Because I'm, I'm going to tell you you're not there, but you have to understand what happened there and understand where you are today. So let's catch up on the story, okay? This is like way back in Exodus, like God's people were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and he's going to deliver them, right? And if you've been to church for a while, you kind of heard some of these stories. And this part of Israel's story is so important, because it's not just when God did these powerful things to pull his people out of slavery, right? He sent plagues on Egypt. He split the Red Sea. He did these amazing things. But the thing that is kind of more central is why he did this. Why he freed his people from slavery was he delivered them so that he could be with them. And so there's this scene in Exodus 19 where he brings them out of Egypt so that he could kind of come face to face with his people. And this is the scene on the mountain. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read this. This is Exodus 19, verse 10. This is what he's talking about here in Hebrews. So the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or even to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, then they shall come up to the mountain. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. This is not a safe place. <laughs> like, that's what the imagery is kind of connoting. It's not a safe environment. This is actually a terrifying moment. And you might be in the crowd and you're like, oh man, I've, I've read about that before. And like, I would give anything to be there. Like, what a cool experience of the presence of God. Wrong. <laughs> you do not want to be there on that day. This mountain is terrifying. People are not just in awe of the presence of God. They are scared for their lives. And this voice that's coming to them from God is not a comfort to them. It's actually a terror. And this is a really interesting thing that happens in the story of the Bible because it really shouldn't happen this way. 
This is not what you'd think the experience of the presence of God would be like, because where did the whole story start? Right, it starts in the Garden of Eden, this garden, this paradise, perfection, home. But what was the defining marker of what made Eden home? Well, it was God's presence. Right, what made Eden so good, it wasn't the land, but it was the one who walked in the garden of the cool of the day. And the reason that Eden was home wasn't just because it had everything that we needed. The reason Eden was home was because it had the one we need. And this is what makes this scene on Mount Sinai so striking, because the Bible tells us that the home that every one of us are looking for is the presence of God, the place where God's presence dwells. And in this story, when God's presence finally comes to physically be with his people again, it isn't comforting. It doesn't feel like home. It's terrifying. And God's presence, it doesn't actually radiate life to them, but everything about this moment warns of death. And it isn't just this moment, okay? Like, it isn't just this moment on Mount Sinai. This is actually the theme that plays out over and over again in the whole of the Old Testament, right? Moses meeting God in the burning bush, right? He's like, hey, Moses, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. Also, don't come any closer. You need to stay back. Mount Sinai, if anyone touches this mountain, like, you're going to be destroyed. Or actually, when God's presence actually comes and fills the temple eventually, there's this word. It's like, you cannot go into the very center, the holy of holies, or you will die. And only one priest one day a year on the Day of Atonement can go in there and he has to tie a rope around his waist because if he goes into the presence of God not being completely purified, he will drop dead and no one else can go get him because they'll drop dead. And so people have to pull his body out from the presence of the Lord. And this is the thing that plays out over and over and everyone within proximity to God actually had to live in a certain way. And this is why you have so many laws in the Old Testament, right? You've got moral laws, you have ritual purity laws, laws about when you could or couldn't enter the temple, when you were considered pure or impure. All of this has to do with people living in proximity to this massive, weighty thing of the holiness of God. And you had to follow these. You had to be vigilant about following these guidelines God set for you because if you entered into his proximity in an impure state, His holiness wouldn't bring you life, but it could actually destroy you. And this is one of like the massive problems that you see in the Old Testament. Is that we are designed to be in the presence of God. It's how we're made. And we're designed to be in that close proximity and we we experience his presence and we actually reflect it back into his world as his image bearers. But because sin and death now marks our lives, the very thing that was supposed to bring us life now actually has the possibility of bringing us death. And the author is saying, hey, I want you to remember that. And I want you to go back in in your mind and go back to Mount Sinai, to this moment where people were standing at the base of the mountain of God where the sound of that trumpet kept getting louder and louder and louder and the ground under their feet was like having this earthquake, like it felt like it was going to split apart. And he's like, I want you to remember that. And now I want to tell you, that's not where you are today. Like his whole point of bringing it up is so you can say like, that's not actually where you are. You've not come to that mountain. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. But the question is why? 
right? Why are we not at this mountain? And honestly, that's a really big question because I just kind of laid out for you, like just breaches a few moments, but like this is the normal pattern of the presence of God. So why is it that this is not the story that we find ourselves in today? What is different? Well, what's different is Jesus Christ. And the whole book of Hebrews, right, is basically trying to help us understand how does Jesus change everything that we know to be true about our experience with God. And one of the things that Jesus was doing on his life on earth was he was actually rewriting the Exodus story. Rewriting it. And not rewriting it kind of like abstractly or loosely, but actually rewriting it incredibly specifically. So where did God meet with his people in the Exodus? He met with them on a mountain, right? Where, like, just follow me here. Where does almost every important moment of Jesus' life happen? On a mountain. Don't believe me? Here we go. Uh, (laughs) Jesus fasted and battled with the lies of Satan in the wilderness, right? Where was that? On a mountain. He preached his most famous sermons. Where? On a mountain. He healed the masses. Where? On a mountain. He was transfigured. On a mountain. He was betrayed. On a mountain. He was crucified. On a mountain. He was taken up to heaven. On a mountain. Here's the point. Jesus is actually with his life completely rewriting the mountaintop experience of the presence of God. And he doesn't do it abstractly. He does it incredibly specifically. There's this moment in Jesus' story where he's walking in this crowd of people, right? Which, first of all, that's weird, right? The presence of God walking around in a crowd of people. And there's this one woman who, she says she's been bleeding for 12 years. So it's like, for her, that time of the month was always, you know? She's got, she's got bleeding, and it's like a really severe issue, not just today, but it's a really severe issue back in that day, because to be kind of in that situation of life, you'd actually be someone who was consistently and chronically impure. It'd be one of the things in the Old Testament, they'd just say, hey, this is like a mark of some of the brokenness of the world, and because that marks you, you can't actually enter into the temple. And so she's someone that actually would be like consistently unclean, and so you actually can't sit on a bench next to her, you can't touch her, because if you touch her, you become unclean by her proximity. And there's this moment where this woman is in this crowd near Jesus, and it says that she wants to be healed, and so she walks up and she just touches the edge of Jesus's garment. And in that moment, she's healed. Every single other person that she would touch would become impure, but she touches Jesus and she becomes pure herself. And what's so amazing is the same thing happens with the lepers, right? Those outcasts with skin disease, those people that walk around the edge of the city yelling unclean because they were outcasts. You can't come into contact with them, but Jesus spends so much of his time hanging out with them. And what's interesting is he isn't defiled by them, but actually now the presence of God and the person of Jesus actually heals them. It makes them pure. And so you see this thing that starts to happen where in the Old Testament, right, it's like things that are impure, God's like, stay back. My presence, even though it should bring life to you because of your impure state, it will actually consume you. But now Jesus Christ doesn't tell things that are impure to stay back. He actually moves towards those things and his very presence, his touch actually makes things pure. And the point of Hebrews 12 is that Jesus has actually rewritten the mountaintop experience. And what's interesting is it isn't that God has changed, but it's actually what the whole of Hebrews is saying is that the cross of Jesus Christ has changed us. So now our experience of the holiness of God, it's actually changed from one of terror and fear and potentially even death to one of invitation and warmth and life. 
Like these two pictures that he's painting could not be more different. And I want you to just read with me these, these verses. Verse 22. He says, but you, because of what Jesus has done, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's really poetic, right? It's like really descriptive. I feel like what he's saying is he's like, listen, you haven't come to an unsafe place. You've come home. Mount Zion, the city of God that all the prophets talked about, the day when one day God would call all his people home to be with him forever, the mountain where all of our wounds would be healed, where all of our tears would be wiped away. And it's like what the author's trying to do is he's like, you, you've seen in the Old Testament this thing play out in real time. Like you, you've seen that picture, you, you know those stories, but I want to paint a new picture for you. Like, I want to help you imagine and think about what this mountaintop experience with God will one day be like. Where are you? Where are you going? What is your story? And he uses this, like, really kind of, like, metaphorical language. Like, it's symbolic. It's powerful. It's poetic. He's like, I want to help you imagine this. And so one of the things that I want to do is I want to actually do that with you, okay? I, I want to help you imagine this. I want to imagine this together as a room. And I, I know this is a little bit weird what we're about to do, okay? So this is like, I don't ever do this. This isn't like my normal thing I do when I'm teaching the Bible. Um, but I want to just, if you'd humor me, I know I'm a guest speaker, but let's, let's do this together. I want to actually just invite you to like, put your pen down for a second, put your notes down. And I want to invite you to just like, take a couple of breaths and close your eyes. And I want to just try to just read and help you picture this scene. So if you would, close your eyes and try to just imagine the scene he's painting. So I want you to picture in your head that you actually have come to this mountain, Mount Zion. And as you're kind of standing at the base of this mountain, at the top of the mountain is a city. And as you're walking towards the city, you, you begin to feel in the depths of you, that there is like, there's something in this city that is valuable. And you don't know why you feel this, but you just feel it in you. Like there is a treasure in this city. There's something in this city that you feel to the depths of you, you've been waiting all of your life to see. And as you continue to walk towards the city, you begin to feel that your entire life has actually only been leading up to this moment, that this is the city you've been walking to your whole life. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And as you walk towards the city, you, you start to feel light and heat on your skin. And although you can't see a sun, the light from the city, it radiates a kind of warmth that you've never experienced before. And as you keep walking deeper into the light itself, you, you're, you're feeling its warmth on your skin you begin to believe that this, this warmth, this light that you're experiencing is like what the sun was trying to tell you about your whole life. 
And as you're walking further into the light, you're getting closer to the city, you begin to hear this noise. And as you come closer and closer, the noise becomes louder and louder. And with loudness comes fullness. And as the sound continues to grow, you you think that you've never heard a noise as beautiful as what you're hearing now. Somehow the noise rises past any volume you have ever heard, but it doesn't hurt. The louder it gets, the more you want it to continue. And as it gets louder, you realize that what you thought was just noise begins to take shape, and you realize this is some kind of music. You couldn't recognize it at first because you've never heard anything like it. But at the same time, you can't stop thinking there's something familiar about it. Despite its newness, there's part of you that feels like you have heard this song before. And as you begin to understand what you are hearing, you know that this is the song of heaven that has been sung from before our world began. This is the music of God's angels. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And as you walk, you all of a sudden realize you're not walking alone. But you look on your right and on your left and you realize you are part of a massive assembly of people. And like some kind of instinct within you, you just you know that you're standing in the midst of the assembly of the firstborn children of God. And as you look into the face of the person beside you, you, you know you've never met them before, but somehow you know their whole story. And their life played out so differently than yours, but somehow it feels just the same. It's like in the weight of this moment, it feels that no matter what path someone took to get to this moment, everyone's story actually ended up being exactly the same. You've come to the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And as you keep walking into the city, the light gets brighter and the sound becomes even louder and you feel like you are watching the climax of the story of the world unfold before your eyes, but you aren't watching it happen. You are in the story. And you look around and you can't help but think that somehow you are in the center of the story. And as you're wondering how this could have possibly happened, all of a sudden you realize that you are standing still and you're looking down at the ground And without realizing it, you've come to the very center of the city. And as you look down, you realize that you're before the very throne of God. And the ground isn't shaking, but it's never felt more solid beneath your feet. And somehow you don't feel scared, but what you feel is that you are finally home. And you know that you've come to to God, who's the judge of all. But as you stand before him, and you feel his eyes on you, fear starts to creep in. Because in a moment, you know, with every fiber of your being, that he knows. He knows about everything. He sees you, the real you, the you that you try to hide from everyone else. The things that you've done in the darkest places of your life, 
you know that the one who sits on the throne, he knows. He is the judge of all and he sees all. And he opens his mouth to speak and expecting judgment, you hear something that you cannot understand because he says to you, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, daughter. Well done, my son. And as you hear these words, you see your whole life story begin to play out before your eyes. And all of the hurt and all of the pain of your life begins to change shape. And all of a sudden, for the very first time, your life story feels so different and you realize that you were never the victim. You were never the outcast. You were never the one who was abandoned. But throughout all your stories, as everything about your life plays out in front of you, the only thing you can see is that you were the one that God loved. Because in this moment, you feel to the depth of your being that you have never been more known and more understood. You have never been more loved or accepted than by this one who sits on his throne. And you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And the scene, it it changes in a moment and light, it envelops the city and and it overwhelms your eyes. You can't see anything anymore. You can feel the light and the brightness seems to go down into your bones. And all of a sudden you realize that in the midst of the light, there is one person standing next to you. One that looks like a son of man one that looks like a lamb that has been slain. And you know it's Jesus. And he's looking at you. And he speaks to you and he says your name. And although you've heard your name your whole life, you hear it as though you are being named for the very first time. And he says your name and he says, welcome home. We've been waiting for a really long, long time for you to get here. And as you look at him, you see his scars. You see his disfigured face. But you know that everything that seemed beautiful in the world was really only a reflection of the beauty that you are looking at now. You come to the realization that everything you loved about the world was really just something you loved about the person who's standing before you. He is what you have been seeking your whole life. And in this moment of realization, you stand under the weight that he is now yours forever. And I want to just give you a moment to just say something to Jesus now in this moment. What do you want to say to him? All right. You can open up your eyes again.
if you are a Christian, the picture I think he's trying to paint for us is he is saying, listen, the deepest longings of your heart will one day be met in the face of Jesus. Because there is going to be this moment where you are going to meet him on the mountaintop. And in that moment, you will not be in an unsafe place, but you will be home. And it's like he's saying, listen, you've, you've not come to this mountain that's marked by fear and unsafety. You, you've, you've actually, you don't walk on eggshells at any moment. Like this guy might cast you out. Like at any moment, like you might mess up and things are not going to go well. No, you, you've, you've actually come to the forever mountain of God the city of the living God. And there's something that's so different about this experience of God than every other experience of God that's ever happened in the history of the world. And you have to ask, like, what makes this different? Like, why is this where we are and not there? Why is this the experience instead of that? And the answer is because the thing that is speaking on top of this mountain is actually not words at all. It's blood. Did you notice that? It's like the voice of God is terrifying on the mountain, but now the thing that is actually speaking this new word is actually the blood of Jesus. And this is what it says. It says, we've come to Jesus, the the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And this is so amazing what he's saying, because at the very beginning of the story of sin and death, you know the very first thing that happens is there's this innocent guy named Abel who like is in a field and he gets slaughtered and his blood seeps into the ground. And there's this moment in Genesis 4 where God comes down and he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And this very first story after Eden, it isn't just a story about two brothers, it's a story about all of us. Because the blood of Abel is like the blood that is on the hands of humanity. And it's on your hands if you're in this room. It's the guilt that basically marks every single person born in this world. And what's true is you can't get rid of it. No matter how many laws you follow, no matter how much you clean yourself up, you can't get this guilt off your hands. It's like the scene from Macbeth, right, where he's trying to wash the blood off his hands and he goes into the ocean and it's like the blood from his hands, it turns the whole ocean into blood. It's like there's not enough water in the whole world to wash this off of you. But he says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Jesus is like the blood that has been shed into our world that more than any single other act of injustice, it's like the one thing that could actually condemn you fully and completely and outright because it's the one time in the history of the world where someone who is actually perfectly righteous and perfectly innocent, where he came into our story in our world and we grabbed him and we crucified him. And it's like, if there is anything in the world that is possible of condemning you fully and completely and outright, it is the blood of Jesus Christ. And what is amazing is he is saying that the blood of Jesus is not on our hands crying out guilty. The blood of Jesus has actually been put over your forehead. It has been sprinkled on you and it cries out, forgiven. And so he says, listen, we've not come to what may be touched We've not come up to a mountain of darkness and fear and trembling. And the reason is because Jesus Christ himself walked up that mountain. 
And at the top of the mountain, there was a cross where he bore our sin and he bore our death. So that when we finally, on that day, come up to the forever mountain of God, we might actually come to a totally different experience of the presence of God. The cross of Jesus Christ, like all of Hebrews is saying this, but like this passage is trying to like paint two totally different pictures for you and be like, do you understand how much the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed your life? I mean, it so changes the experience of God that if before it's like if you even touch the edge of the mountain, you will die. And now it's like if you can even get close enough to Jesus to just touch the edge of his robe, you will be healed. And listen, this isn't like there is a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament. And God used to be angry and now he's not. No, listen, it is the exact same thing that made his presence so terrifying and dangerous at Sinai. That is the exact same things about him that makes his presence so inviting and healing today. Mount Sinai was terrifying because at the top of the mountain was the judge of the earth. And his presence, his bellowing, like it is terrifying But that is the exact same thing that makes Zion so comforting. Because the same judge is at the top of that mountain, but the difference is because of the cross of Jesus Christ, that judge is now your father. And he has actually, with his declarative, bellowing voice, declared that you are forgiven, you are made clean, you are righteous. You see, when I was sitting on top of this mountain with my friend, Joe, and we did this, did this climb, we were sitting on this kind of warm experience of this mountain in the sunshine, and we were looking across at the mountain that was being lit on fire, right? The mountain that was just like in this tempest, in this gale. We were looking across there, and there was this moment where I was like, I'm really glad I'm safe here, but there was something in me that was like, oh, but I want to know what it'd be like on that mountain. Like, I want to interact with that power. I, I want to be changed by it. Like, I want to stand up on the mountain, and I want to feel the force of that, but I don't want it to destroy me. I want it to heal me. And what is so amazing about the whole Bible is you do not just have a God who is soft and who is impotent and who just, like, for no reason at all just says, you can live whatever life you live, and I will just give you free love. No, you have a God who actually bellows with rage and wrath and is a God who is a fiery person. You actually have a God who is full of power and strength. And it's actually that God on Mount Sinai is the exact same God who's on Mount Zion, but it's the cross of Jesus Christ. It takes, actually, now God is not just someone like your friend, right? Right? You've got friends who are like, my friend accepts me exactly as I am, and it's great. And you're like, that's great, but you're a bum, right? (laughs) Like, your acceptance of me doesn't change my life, but the acceptance of the judge of the earth can. And that's what he's trying to say. He's like, listen, Jesus Christ, your experience of him today, it is soft, and it is kind, and it is warm, and it is inviting. But the thing he's trying to pull you into is he's like, let that thing lure you to him. Let that thing, let that thing like pull you to him. But don't mistake who God is. This is how Hebrews 12 ends, and then we'll close. He just says, see that you do not refuse him who's speaking. 
For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm always so stunned by this. God, we know that even as we come into this room this morning, maybe we weren't aware when we walked in, but maybe we're more aware now that, God, there are impurities and there is sin and there are flaws and things that mark our lives that are extremely significant in light of your holiness. And yet, God, we stand here today and we are safe. And we are not being told by you, stand back, keep your distance. The thing we are being told by you is to come closer. Come closer. Don't just touch the edge of my robe. Give me a hug. Come closer, come closer, come closer, come closer. You are invited into my presence because I have made you clean. And so Jesus, as we worship you today, would you help us experience that maybe in a new way? In your name, amen.